Well, good morning, everyone. So good to have all of you with us at all of our churches today, Bluntstown, Chipley, and Mariana, as we are in our first week of our series entitled Redeeming Grace, and you'll see the end of that trailer on Christmas Eve. How about that, right? And uh, hey, listen, I am so excited to start this series with you because it is absolutely always one of my favorite times of the year as we move into the Christmas season because there's just so many great things to celebrate and to talk about. But one thing before we jump in today's conversation, I want to share with you uh, something that I talked about two weeks ago at our evening of vision. I mean, there are so many exciting things that God is doing in and through our church. In fact, next Sunday, I'm going to share with you how you are blessing children uh, this Christmas season through um, foster care, through your generosity that you shared two weeks ago. And by the way, if you picked up a gingerbread gift tag to buy a gift for a foster child, make sure you have that gift back at your campus by next Sunday. Um, Another thing that I shared with you, and I'm so excited about this, is uh, we, we talked about this our evening of vision, but we had more first-time guests in 2022 than we've had in previous years. You have been showing people that you are for them by investing and inviting. So I just want to thank you as a church so much for being for our community. In fact, can you just celebrate what you guys are doing as a church? Because you really are making a difference in our community. It absolutely, I can't thank you enough. So many great things, and you don't want to miss some of the things we're going to share with you next week. Now, if you're new to RCC, because we have a lot of people who are new to our church this year, I would like to invite you into an environment that we create called Engage. It's a series of four conversations, and these conversations, they'll give you an insider view about what we're all about, where our mission, vision, and strategy is as a church. Also, it's going to give you a chance to discover the resources and the opportunities that we offer to help you connect with our church family and connect and grow in your relationship with God. So I would invite you to be a part of that this afternoon, the first of these three or four conversations, this afternoon at noon, and you're going, well, I hadn't planned on that. That's okay. We have you covered. We have lunch ready for you. We also have childcare available for you. So, hey, if you want a free lunch and and free childcare, it's also a great opportunity for that as well, right? Uh, But it also would be a great next step for you as you begin your next year as part of the RCC Church family. So I'd invite you to be part of our engaged experience at all of our churches today at noon. We'd love to have you be a part of that. So go ahead and grab your Bibles, your talk notes, whatever, and let's jump into the first conversation in our series entitled Redeeming Grace. And as we begin this series, I would like for you to think about this next statement that we're going to put on the screen in light of Christmas. And here's the statement. History is the story of God moving and proving his love for you. In other words, history shows us that God is not distant and God is not remote. He, he didn't set everything in motion and just kind of go his own way. No, God has been active. He's been an active in our world ever since he created our world. In fact, there's like one overarching purpose that is driving God's movement in history, and that is this, his love for us, as we sang about this morning. God has been all about proving his love for us. He's been trying to help us not only see who he is, but how he feels about us. In fact, God's love is extremely remarkable, especially remarkable in light of humanity's brokenness and rebellion. Think about this. In spite of our sin, Despite our disregard, in spite of our doubt, and maybe even our unbelief about God, God has not stopped working to show us and prove his love for us throughout history. And the very first Christmas, as we're going to see in this series, it's really the central point in history where God 
most demonstrated his love for you and his love for me. See, Christmas is when God stepped from heaven to earth and he showed us what God is like and he showed us how much God loves us. But here's the thing. We're not gonna start this series with the story of Christmas. Instead, to really help us understand how much God loves us, no matter how low we go in our life or how far away we wander from God, we're gonna go back to a time in Israel's history, a time called the period of the judges. And what you're going to see is that even though Israel, the Israelite people, they ignored, they disobeyed, they embarrassed God, they did their own thing, God who had been ignored by his people, God who had been embarrassed by his people, God who had been abandoned for idols, for other country by his people, that very same God, he stepped into the messes the nation of Israel created and he sent deliverers to them. He rescued them, he redeemed them. Now, the book about this period in Israel's history is also called Judges. And in the book of Judges, or this document called Judges, it holds some of the strangest stories in all of the Bible. So today, we thought, well, why not lean into that and look at one of the most disturbing, one of the most outrageous stories found in the Old Testament. It's a story about one of the lowest moments in the history of the Jewish people. And just to give you a little bit of context, the book of Judges, it tells the story of the Jewish peoples, um, basically the history in the promised land, now modern day Israel, between the time when Joshua dies and when Saul is made king. And it was a period of about 330 years during which Israel had no single leader. Instead, they had what were known in this period as judges who served local or, as, or served as local or like tribal kind of legends. These were larger than life kind of men and women who raised up grassroots army. They prefer, uh, performed incredible feats. They enforced God's law and they brought moments of peace to the nation of Israel. But as you read judges, you realize, man, they needed these people. These judges were desperately needed because during this 330-year period, the 12 tribes of the Israelites, they didn't behave very well. They didn't like being told what to do. So when it came to God's law and how to live and how to treat others people, what they would do is they would just disregard those laws. They would disregard them and they would disobey them. And their disobedience, it would result in disaster. And after a period of time, the consequences of their disobedience that ended up in a disaster, it would catch up with them. And so what would happen is they would cry out to God for help and they would promise to change. And then God would come along and send a deliverer. And, and this deliverer, what would happen is this deliverer would step in and he would redeem, he would straighten out their messes. And then after things got going again well and they got tired of being told what to do, they go through this whole disobedience, disaster, deliver cycle over and over again. Now, here's why this conversation is so vital for us in this season. I mean, even if you're with us today at any of our churches and you're not a church person or you're not a Christ follower or you don't take the Old Testament or the New Testament scripture seriously, whatever your stance is about God, here is something that we all have in common. At some point in your life, you did something, 
You disobeyed something or someone. You either disobeyed like a religious law that you grew up with or you disobeyed your parents maybe or disobeyed a school principal or a teacher. You might even have disobeyed your conscience. I mean, your conscience said, don't do that. Don't do it. It's not worth it. And you went ahead and went against what you knew was wise. And after time, because you kept disobeying, there was this disaster in your life. And you're starting to think, I can't believe I got myself in this mess. And then you started scrambling around for solutions to get you out of your mess. Isn't that how it works for most of us? And then, believe it or not, somebody came along and they gave you a break. Somebody gave you a second chance. Somebody bailed you out of jail. Somebody paid that fine for you. Somebody helped you get in rehab. Somebody came into your life and they delivered you. They rescued you and you said, oh, thank you so much. I'll never, ever do that again. I'll never, ever go back that way. And you didn't for about a week, right? Maybe two. Remember that? I mean, doesn't this just sound so familiar to our lives? I mean, for many of us, this has been the cycle of our life as well, not just for the nation of Israel, but for ours as well. And in some ways, it's a story that we repeat over and over again. It's the story of, don't tell me what to do. I'll do what I want when I want to do it. And the story of the judges, it reflects a pattern that we discover is very true about our own lives. Now, the Jewish people, as I said, they lived this cycle, they lived this pattern for like over 330 years. And their continual cycle of disobedience eventually led to this very disastrous, this very disturbing, outrageous story that's recorded toward the end of the book of Judges. Now, I'm not gonna read all of the story because it's way too graphic. But I, but I want you, I want to look at part of it because what this does, story does is it illustrates what happens when a person or when a group of people or even a nation says, you know what? I'm tired of being told what to do. I, I'm going to do what I want to do. You do what you think is right. Just don't tell me what's right for me. I'm going to do what I think is best for me. So here's how the story goes, and if you dare read it, you can find it in Judges chapter 19 in the Old Testament. Now everybody's turning there, right? But first, let me just kind of give you a little bit of overview. First of all, there was a man, and this man, he lived in Ephraim, and he was from the tribe of Levi. Now, this man, he got himself a concubine, not a combine, but a concubine. I'll explain what that is in just a moment. And he got this concubine from the city of Bethlehem, and she was from the tribe of Judah. Now, just to be a little bit clear and give some context to this story, don't forget, this man is a Levite, which is the tribe of the priest. So you have a man who is from the tribe of the priest who has this concubine. Now, what's a concubine? Well, a concubine was basically a sex slave who was considered the property of the man who had her. So this was not allowed in Jewish law. But this man doesn't care. He, he's saying, I'm going to do what I want to do. I feel like this is best for me. I feel like this is right for me. So what he does is he brings his concubine back to Ephraim, and they live together for a while. And then she's unfaithful to him, and she runs back to her family in Bethlehem. 
Well, about four months pass, and either his anger diminishes or he gets lonely. But this man decides, okay, I'm going to travel back to Bethlehem, and I'm going to get my concubine. So he travels with a servant back to Bethlehem. He shows up at this woman's father's house, and he tells the father, he says, I want your daughter, my concubine, back. And this is where the story gets really weird. Because the father doesn't want to give her back. But at the same time, the father, he refuses to protect his daughter. Instead, what he keeps doing is he keeps getting this Levite, this this man drunk every night, so that he doesn't feel good enough to travel home or leave the following day. And this goes on for like four or five days. And finally, on the fifth day, late in the afternoon, this man from Ephraim, he thinks, I'm not staying one more night. We're, We're leaving. So he loads up his two donkeys, he loads his male servant and his concubine, and off they go. And about nightfall, they make it to a town called Gibeon. Now, Gibeon was part of the land of the tribe of the Benjamites. It's a tiny little village, and the way that hospitality worked back then is you would go to the town square, and you would wait for someone to invite you to stay in their home for the night. It was the original Airbnb, right? They even had this, not a new thing, right? But this night, they wait and they wait and they wait, and everybody in the town ignores them. They didn't have a very good chamber of commerce there, right? But anyhow, so everybody ignores them. Nobody invites them to home, which should be a sign that nobody wanted them in the town. So this is a cl- a, clearly a sign that nobody wanted them in town. Finally, after dark, an older man comes back into town and he sees him. And it just so happens that he's originally from Ephraim as well, where this, Le- this man, this Levite lives. So he invites the man, his male servant, and his concubine to spend the night in their home. Everybody with me so far? All right, so this group now is in this guy's home and they're enjoying dinner and the story takes a very tragic and a very strange turn. Here's what the writer of Judges tells us happens next. Judges chapter 19, verse 22. While they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house. Pounding on the door, they shouted to the old man who owned the house, Bring out the man who came to your house so we can have sex with him. Now, just pause here for just a moment. Because for many ancient civilizations in ancient times, this idea, bring him out so we can have sex with him, was more about humiliation than gratification. See, they didn't want strangers staying in their town and staying in their homes, so this would humiliate this man, hopefully enough, that then he would go spread the word when he was out and about in his travels and say, never go visit anybody in Gibeon. Well, notice what happens in verse 23. The owner of the house went outside and said, no, my friends, don't be so vile. Since this man is my guest, don't do this outrageous thing. And then the story gets even stranger. And you start asking yourself, how's this man even thinking? Notice what happens. Look, here's my virgin daughter and his concubine. I will bring them out to you now, and you can use them and do to them whatever you wish. But as for this man, don't do such an outrageous thing. And you're thinking, what kind of strange thinking is this, right? So then here's what happens. 
But the men would not listen to him. So the man took his concubine and sent her outside to them. And they, and I'm not going to continue reading out of respect for those of you who may have gone through some traumatic assault. But you can absolutely imagine what they do. It is horrible. It is a very violent night. And the next morning, when the Levite walks out to the front door to leave his house, he finds his concubine lying dead in the doorway. So he loads her up on the donkey, and he takes her back to Ephraim, his hometown, and he contemplates what to do next. And finally, I mean, as you can imagine, he's so enraged, he decides to write a letter to the leaders of all the 12 tribes telling them what these Benjamites in Gibeah did. But he realizes that he needed some proof of what had happened. And this is so strange and bizarre. So he chops his concubine into 12 pieces and sends a piece with each of the letters as proof. I mean, it's so strange. I mean, how low can a nation go? And when they get the letter, the response of all the leaders of every tribe is the same. Notice what it says in verse 30. Such a thing has never been seen or done, not since the days the Israelites came up out of Egypt. Literally what they're saying is, we have hit rock bottom as a nation. We have hit rock bottom as a people. I mean, they're saying, this is just unimaginable. The leaders of the 12 tribes are saying, how did we get so low? How did we get here? Look at what they say in the last part of this verse. They said, just imagine, like, like they're saying, you, you can't even imagine this. You, you can't even make this up. You can't even believe this would ever happen. We must do something. We got to do something. We just can't keep letting this kind of thing happen. So somebody speak up. And so the leaders of the 12 tribes, they all gather and they decide, okay, two things we're going to do. One, we'll never let our daughters marry a Benjamite. And two, we're all going to send soldiers and we're going to form an army and we're going to march to the land of Benjamin and we're going to say, turn over the man who did this or everybody pays. And guess what happens? The Benjamites say, you can't tell us what to do. We're not going to listen to you. We have our own rights. Nobody tells us what to do. And you know what happens? A war breaks out. And over the next three days, 65,000 men die in three days. I mean, this is just horrific. And finally, after about three days of fighting and 65,000 people dying, the Benjamites, they figure out they're defeated. Every town they have is burned to the ground. Every man, woman, and child and animal is killed. I mean, it is gruesome. It's tragedy on top of tragedy. It's bad decision on top of bad decision. But don't miss this. There were about 600 men of the Benjamite tribe who escaped and hid in the desert. But that's not the end of the story. Once everybody calms down, it dawns on these other 11, 12, 11 tribes that they have wiped out a whole tribe. That's part of their family, basically. And now they're heartbroken. And so now these 11 tribes are talking about it. And somebody raises their hand and says, um, hey, actually, they weren't all wiped out. There's like 600 over there hiding in the desert. 
And then somebody else says, um, but they're all men. And we swore that we wouldn't let our daughters marry them so that there's no way for them to continue the Jewish bloodline of the Benjamites. Well, another guy speaks up and says, well, actually, um, nobody came from Jabez Gilead to fight. So these people, they didn't make that promise. So guess what decision they make? They create another tragedy. They march their army to Jabesh Gilead, kill everyone in the town, these, these other 11 tribes do, kill everyone in the town except for the virgin women. They drag these women back. They give them to the 600 men, Benjamites, to take as wives. The only problem was there was not enough women for all the 600 men to get a wife. So guess what they do? They come up with another horrible idea to fix that, which leads to more hurt and more harm. They encourage the remaining single Benjamite men to sneak up on a town called Shiloh that is having an annual festival. They tell them, hide in the woods, and when the virgin daughters come out and dance in the field, then these men rush in and they kidnap these virgin women as their wives for themselves. And then the 12 tribes tell the fathers, oh, don't be mad at this because they're saving the tribe of Benjamin. So meanwhile, these 600 Benjamite men, they march back um, to their scorched, destroyed town where their wives over their shoulders and they're gonna rebuild their town. End of the story. It's horrible, isn't it? It's just tragic, it's sickening, it's barbaric, it's messy. Now, here, here's what I can imagine about most of you are sitting here listening to this story. You're thinking, I didn't even know that was in the Bible. You should read your Bible sometime. There's some very interesting stories there. And I can imagine that your parents never read you this story, Bible story at night. It's probably one they never read. And, and you know, you probably never looked at your dad and said, Dad, I would love to hear the story about the concubine being cut in 12 pieces. And he goes, no, sons, that's the story we say for Christmas service at church. You know, it's like... <laughs> I mean, it's awful. Like, who can go that low? Well, what would make men think and do so many terrible things? I mean, it was one terrible thing after another. It was one tragic thing, one disaster after another. Well, the writer of Judges gives us a clue in the last line when he gives us the account of the time of the Judges where he said this. In those days, there was no king in Israel Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Literally, in those days, they had lost their collective moral compass. They had no consensus about what was right or wrong or moral in God's eyes. They had no final authority because they had abandoned God. Everybody chose to follow their own truth, make up their own rules. Everybody did what was right for them. Does that sound familiar? I mean, think about it. When you think about that story, every character throughout the story that I just shared with you, they did what they thought was best for them, what was the best thing for them. At every point in the story, every decision was not determined by God's way or God, by God's will, but by what they thought was the best truth or what was the best thing for them. 
Now, here's the problem with this. The problem was that by defining right in their own eyes, by defining right individually, don't miss this, by defining right individually, they created chaos and heartbreak and tremendous suffering collectively. So for the next few weeks, I want to help us process where this same attitude may be creating chaos in our lives because the truth is there's a little bit of this attitude in all of us, this attitude that says nobody tells me what to do. There's a little bit of that in you and a whole lot of that in me. There's something about you and me that wants to go, wait just a minute, it's my life. I'm gonna do what's right for me. You can do what's right for you. Don't get in my business. Don't tell me what to do. I can do what I want to do, when I want to do, with whomever I want to do it, as long as it doesn't hurt anyone. It's my life. It's my family. It's my body. This is what's right for me, whether you feel like it's right for you or not. But here is the problem, and you probably want to write this down. Doing what is right in your eye individually will eventually lead to chaos collectively. It always does. It always does. I mean, think about it. You you never heard a child custody worker sitting down with a parent and saying something like this. Hey, you know, we've had to take your kids away from you because you were completely irresponsible with your kids. But to get your children back is to continue doing what you want, when you want, how you want, with whoever you want. And when you get great at living with no authority in your life and doing your own thing, then we'll give your kids back. You've never heard them say that. You've never heard a parole officer say anything like that. You've never heard a judge say anything like that. Why? Because people who are on the consequent side of the equation, they absolutely know better. But it's not just doing what is right in your own eyes that's going to lead to chaos collectively. Here's the other thing you need to understand. Doing what is right in your your eye individually will eventually lead to chaos personally. This whole thing, I'm going to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, with whoever I want to do, as long as it doesn't hurt someone, I just want to tell you, that is impossible. And the reason it's impossible is that eventually you hurt yourself. Not only do you hurt other people, but you also hurt yourself. When you do what's right in your own eyes, what's your own truth, what's best for you, you hurt yourself. And ultimately, the way that you're hurting yourself is you're going to be mastered by something that you think is right for you, that is your own truth. And for many of you, that thing that has mastered you was once your expression of freedom, your right to do your own thing. And now that debt, that habit, that toxic relationship, that addiction, that has created chaos for you individually and you hurt yourself. And it began with, nobody tells me what to do. I'm my own person. But the incredible thing is that when our world falls apart collectively and personally, whenever we find ourselves in this very destructive cycle, what happens is we often cry out to God and we ask God to intervene. And the amazing thing, because God is love, is that he does. And while we may feel the consequences of our behavior, his redeeming grace is always abundant. And that's the amazing reminder and the impact of the Christmas story on our life in this season because Christmas is the story of God's redeeming grace. 
And as we go through this series over the next few weeks, and as you find yourself in this cycle, because you're going to find yourself somewhere in this cycle because we tend to move through it. The good news of Christmas is that God opened a door for you through Jesus' birth, his death, and his resurrection so that you could call him Father. And he will step into the chaos of your life, no matter how low you go. And he will give you the gift of redeeming grace. If he did it for the nation of Israel, how much more will he do it for you? And here's what I want you to think about before we end our time together today. If you were God and you knew every person doing what they wanted to do, that it would create so much pain and chaos, what would you say? What would you do? How would you respond if you watched someone that you love trapped in the lie that they could do what was right in their own eyes, that they could make up their own truth? Well, here's the thing. The good news of the story of Christmas is this. History is a story of God moving and proving his love for you, no matter how low you go. So what God did is he put on flesh and he came to earth and he offered every one of us the gift of redeeming grace. That, that's why on December the 25th, most people in this world, they're gonna be thinking about what's all this Christmas thing mean? You know, what's it to do with this baby Jesus and this Christmas statement and, you know, King, you know, Jesus and Messiah, David, Star, Bethlehem, all of those kind of things. And while we may never have thought about it this way, but in pausing to celebrate Christmas, we are celebrating the birth of the Messiah. We are celebrating the birth of a king. But naturally, as we just talked about this morning, none of us want a king telling us what to do. We prefer to be our own king and do our own thing. So over this next week, well, next three weeks, we're gonna unpack what it means to break this cycle in our lives through God's redeeming grace. And we're gonna discover how God's redeeming grace and love intersects with each of our lives. But for this week, I want you to start paying attention to where your desire to do your own thing, to not be told what to do is taking you. Because maybe what is right and true for you in your own eyes isn't actually right. And it's not good for you individually, and it's not good for your family collectively, and it's not good for the community or the state or the nation or the world. Maybe it's leading you to do some things that later you're going to wish you had never chosen to do, and it's leading you to consequences that ultimately you will not like the outcome. Listen, Christmas tells us there is a better way. There is deliverance when we need it. There is a deliverer who has been working throughout history to move and prove and show us his love, his redeeming grace. And many of you, maybe you came in today and you thought, man, I've gone way too low for God to ever care about me. Listen, the story of Christmas is really his story. History is the story of God moving and proving his love for you. And we're gonna talk about that more next week. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this incredible opportunity to just pause at the beginning of our week, to be reminded of the destruction cycle that we all find ourselves in. When we say, I'm gonna do my own thing. Nobody's telling me what to do. 
and we start disobeying, it leads to disaster. I thank you. I thank you that Christmas is the reminder that you are our deliverer. You're our redeemer. Thank you for your redeeming grace. I pray this week we pay attention to where our desires are taking us. And God, may, may the awareness of that cause us to lean in, to say, God, I want to understand you, your love, and your grace even more. So God, I just pray that over these next few weeks that you'll just take us on a new journey of discovering your redeeming grace and love. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, one thing before you leave. Christmas Eve is going to be here pretty soon. And don't forget, on that weekend, we're gonna be having services on the 24th, not on the 25th. Sunday is Christmas. You're gonna be able to spend Sunday with your family. We're gonna have our Christmas Eve services on the 24th, as you've heard before, nine o'clock, 10, 30, and one. Now, here's the thing we would like for you to do. We would like for you to reserve a ticket. You can scan the QR code in front of you and um, you will see a menu come up. It'll be something like they're gonna put on the side screens right here and you can reserve a ticket. They're free. You can reserve as many as you want. They're free. It's just to make sure that we have um, tickets or seats available for everyone at all of our campuses for all of our services. If you're saying I'm not a technology person, just stop by your gallery on the way out or your lobby and someone in the lobby in our guest services team will be glad to help you make sure that you reserve a ticket. Hey everyone, have a great week. Don't let this story cause nightmares for you. Lean into God's redeeming grace. We'll have a great, have a great week.